Where is God? That is the resonant question in the book of Daniel. You see, Daniel is written to a group of God's people that are in the middle of their exile, and they're asking questions that you and I ask, questions that, like in that video, am I alone? Where is God? Does God see me? Will this ever end? And so we have been diving into this book, uh, the book of Daniel, together, and today we're in Daniel chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to the book of Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We've got the, the words up on the, scripture, or up on the screen if you can follow along. I do also want to make note that we have some Bibles available as a gift to you um, on our table as you e exit at our Next Steps table there. There's some Bibles in the translation that I use, that I read and preach from, which is the English Standard Version. And so please, if, if you don't have a Bible or you'd like one, in, in, in this version, please grab one of those on your way out. So the book of Daniel's got some lengthy chapters in it. Uh, last week, we didn't read the entirety of the chapter. This week, we are going to read the entire of chapter three. So it's 30 verses, so hang in with me. It's a great story. Uh, you may be familiar with this story, so uh, don't be surprised if you've heard it before, but I hope perhaps even to some of you this might be new. But let's read uh, God's word beginning in chapter three of Daniel all the way through the end. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God 
who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then those men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then king, king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our God, it will stand forever. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of it. Father, we come now with many things vying for our attention. Lord, we look at this miraculous event, and sometimes we are just straight doubtful and skeptical about it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remove that hardness from our hearts and that you would help us to glean truth from your word and that you would move in the hearts of your people today for your own glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, maps are pretty much an obsolete relic for, for us today, right? Um, we live and die by our phones, you know, love it or hate it. You type in where you want to go on your phone and it will tell you how to get there most of the time. Uh, maps pretty much are irrelevant, but this week I actually came across, I, I don't even remember where, reading stuff, uh, 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 an old ancient second century map. You can kind of see it there. It's a decent picture of it. And in these old maps, what people would do is that when they wanted to draw a place that they didn't know about, they didn't have all the information that we have, they would draw a dragon there. And so these were, these were places that invoked fear 
in people. They didn't know what was out there, and so they feared that the most, right? Isn't it interesting that, that what we don't know often generates fear in our hearts? It's the unknown. It's the uncertain. That's, that's where the flames of fear actually rise up in our lives. And so much like this map and much like our lives, the unknown is scary. We fear what we don't know. You see, it's scary to trust a God that you don't know. It truly is. You look at a passage like the passage we're going to look at today, and you say, I don't really know a God like that. I've never experienced a fiery furnace type of scenario like that. But there are many things and many truths for us to see about trusting a God like that. In fact, this passage points us to a much more miraculous scandal that would happen thousands of years later in the coming of Jesus. But today, the bottom line for us today in this passage is this, that since God has delivered us from death, we can now trust him with our life. So because God has delivered us from death, we can now trust him for life. How do we do that? What are, what are some of the things that this passage is calling us to do? I want us to draw out think, three things for us to actually do today, and they are these. First, I want us to identify our idols. Secondly, I want us to consider the consequences. And then thirdly, I want us to depend on the deliverer. So let's first look at what it looks like to identify our idols. If you weren't here with us last week, you got to know about chapter 2. Chapter 2 had this great dream involved where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had this recurring nightmare about this rather large statue. And the essence of the, the, the dream and the statue was it would be crushed. It would be crushed by another rock, the coming of another kingdom, which we identified as, as Jesus bringing his kingdom here. And the, the head of that image was made of gold, and the, the interpretation of the dream was that Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, represented that gold. And so here, on the heels of that dream, Nebuchadnezzar gets this great idea to build a golden image. This is almost kind of flying in the face of, of common sense, right? You, you just had this dream, this nightmare that told you that your kingdom wouldn't stand forever. And this bold-faced Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I'm going to build a large golden image to show that dream what the reality is. Now, listen, the, the passage in the beginning in verses one and two, it, it gives us some, some kind of some indicators for the size of it. It says it was 60 cubits and 60 cubits high, six cubits deep. It's 90 feet high, uh, uh, roughly nine feet deep. That means nothing to you. Let me, let me put a little bit of a, a barrier for you. Have, have you ever been downtown, uh, Lomas and Fourth or so, the Bernalillo County Courthouse? Anybody ever seen that? Lady Justice in the front, troublemakers. Some, somebody's been down there. You know what I'm talking about. Well, some of you don't. You're the goody two-shoes in our crowd. But then nonetheless, there's a, there's a courthouse down on Lomas and Forth, and that building is nine stories high. It's the same height as this image would have been. He built a golden image that big. It was obnoxious. It was narcissistic in nature. I mean, that's how Nebuchadnezzar felt about himself. And that's actually how idolatry works. It's the worship of self. It's the preference of our own preferences over those of God. And so we see this narcissistic love of the king. And what I love about this, if you, if you noticed, 
as I was reading through the passage, there's a lot of repetition in this passage. He, he named all of the people that he wanted there, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the magistrates. And then he named all those instruments numerous times. And then he named all the people, nations, and, and tribes. Listen, that is intentional in the Old Testament. Uh, scribes, the, the scribal work of writing was very tedious, okay? Parchment was, was hard to come by. And so when, when a Hebrew author, Daniel, writing this, makes repetition, it's on purpose. He's giving us an emphasis, and here's why he's repeating all of this. He's showing us that everyone from everywhere was being called to give everything to this God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted from these people. He wanted everybody to give everything to his God. And there's speculation, was this representative of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Was this some you know, God of the, the ancient pagans that it was representing? We're not really sure. The text doesn't really tell us. But the, the boldness is very obvious. What you have to know about yourself and what Daniel and his friends are learning about human nature in their own experience is that we were all made for worship. And so Nebuchadnezzar is hitting on the heartbeat of what it means to be human. And so if you notice the way the text read was everybody did what he asked of them. Worship was natural for them. Uh, one famous theologian, he's a, he's a reforming theologian, kind of 16th century. His name's John Calvin. You may or may not have heard of him. But in his, one of his writings, the Christian Institutes, he talks about human nature as, uh, he says, the human nature is that we are a perpetual factory of idols. He's speaking of our hearts when left to themselves. In other words, our hearts are constantly construing idols to worship. That's how God made us. And they're hardwired in a default. There's a, there's a, there's a hardwire that's gone wrong. And we, we call that our, our sin nature, our fallenness. Listen, the, the identification of idols is so important. It was important for these men. It was important for Nebuchadnezzar. And it's certainly important for you. Because in this story, you are more like Nebuchadnezzar than we actually are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think oftentimes when we read these, these Sunday school type of passages that, we, you know, it's the great story for the children, we associate with the great moral hero in the story, right? We say, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm faithful like that, I'm never gonna do that. But the reality is we probably are like the rest of them that gave everything to this God. And so the question is, how do we identify idols? Because I know if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, well, I don't see any nine feet golden statues anywhere to fall down at. We know we're not, we're not doing any idol worship like that. And so we, we really negate the, the essence of the passage because the passage is here for us because the idols are here. So do you want to know how to find idols? Here, here's how idols are known. Idols are known when your significance is shown. Idols are known when your significance is shown. So one way to go about identifying idols in our lives is to ask diagnostic questions, right? So like when we're dealing with illnesses, we always ask like, what are the symptoms? Or, or how do I know what's going on in my body? Those types of things. We can ask ourselves questions like this in order to identify the idols that are hiding in our hearts. Questions like, what gives my life meaning and significance? Questions like, what changes my behavior? In other words, what do I get upset about? What is it that really fires me up? Or questions like, what do I think about most often? Like, when I'm thinking about nothing, what am I really thinking about? 
These are some diagnostic questions that I think can get at the heart of idolatry that lies in, in you and, and it lies in me. Now, uh, one of the important things for us to understand as, as Christians is, is that our idolatry, though it is different in nature, though it is different in the way it manifests itself, it is still the same as the struggle that was going on here. So let me, let me just, I kind of like to play this game some, sometimes up front. And, and, and really, when I'm, when I'm picking on you, sometimes when people will talk to me about a sermon, they'll be like, Are you, were you talking to me? Like, was that, was that directed at me? Were you thinking about me? And, and the reality is, no, I, I wasn't. But, but because our condition is so similar, I think some of these will hit you. So here are some common idols that give us meaning significance that we are so quickly to bow down to. The first one is approval idolatry. Approval idolatry gives you meaning and significance when you are loved and respected. You love to be loved and you love to be respected. And when you get that, all is well. When you don't get that, all is not well. Approval idolatry. Another one that's common is control idolatry. When my life is under control, when my life is predictable, when I can influence the path of my life, all is well. Control idolatry. Another idolatry, this is one of my particular favorite ones to pick on, particularly at church, is religion idolatry. When I am adhering to the religious rules and generally being a good person, all is well. Religious idolatry. We think that, that going to church makes us right or you know, walking ladies across the street is right or, or giving our money. Though these things are all good, they are not ultimate. Religious idolatry is very common. How about family idolatry? When, when my children are happy or when my family is happy, this is oh, oh so common for us, right? Like that is the ultimate thing because I mean family is a good thing, right? I mean we want our kids to be happy. We want our family to be happy. But when it becomes ultimate, it becomes our idol. One last one that I'll pick on today is what I call the suffering idolatry. That is when I'm hurting or I have a problem, only then do I feel worthy of love. In other words, it's the, the essence of your identity comes from the essence of your suffering. And all of these things are idols that we quickly bow down to, that we quickly find meaning and significance in. And Daniel and his friends here are offered a false god, a god that would give them immediate access to the king, a god that would offer them perhaps riches beyond their greatest understanding while in exile, yet they refuse to bend the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. It's important that we identify our idols. Secondly, let's consider the consequences. Uh, have you ever been threatened with a, a consequence on your behavior? I, I mean, we all have. Let me just tease out a couple. The younger you are, the simpler they are. Here's one of them. If you don't eat your dinner, you don't get dessert. dessert. Oh, that was like the death blow as a kid, right? So as we progress and we grow in life, that you know, if you speed, you get a ticket. Yeah, that's a consequence. Or if you don't pay rent, you get evicted. Right. So, so we're always kind of living life with these, these looming threats over us, right? It's like we're living on this performance treadmill in life. Like we're trying to avoid as many bad consequences as we possibly can. Well, there's, there's some similarities to that in Christianity, but there are also some very vast differences. Listen, Daniel and his friends are now under a second decree of death. In chapter 2, they were, the, the, the king said, listen, if you don't interpret my dream, you're going to die. Here they say, if you 
don't worship my God, you're going to die. It's going to happen again and again. Listen, the, the constant uh, consequence is looming over their lives. But the, the heart of the matter really touches in verse 15. I think it's verse 15, yeah, where uh, at the end of verse 15, where Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, you just kind of read his voice into this, uh, and let me read it to you in, in the voice I hear him saying it. It says like this, and who's the God that will deliver you out of my hands, right? So Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is the God holding the strings of their life in his very own hands, and he asks this rhetorical question that God of the God of the Bible will answer with such vigorous power. He says, who's the God that will de- deliver you out of my hands? And worthy of us camping is the response of the men. Let's camp it in just verses 16, 17, and 18. This is what a response of conviction and faith sounds like. Verses 16, 17, and 18. There's three things that they basically tell Nebuchadnezzar. They tell him, we will not answer. We don't answer to your gods. They tell him, our God can deliver us. And then they thirdly say, God owes us nothing. And so the first thing for us to consider is that, that they don't answer to other gods, that, that though they are under the authority of this earthly king, their ultimate authority and their ultimate responsibility is to their God in heaven. And so faithfulness acknowledges God's authority and power is ultimate. I mean, we don't understand, and perhaps it's coming our way as our, as our country moves in a different direction, but we don't understand what it's like to face a decree of death for faith like these men did. And so their very lives were on the line, and their conviction is rooted that their answer is not to the God of Nebuchadnezzar, it's to the God of the Bible. But the second thing that it shows us is that God's able to deliver out of the hands that oppresses people that they are facing the fiery judgment and wrath of this king. That's what's coming. It's, it's inevitable. They know they will not bend the knee, and they know what Nebuchadnezzar has promised will come to fruition, but their, their confidence is in God's ability to deliver them from it. If you notice the way the text read, he says, he says uh, if this is be so, in other words, if you're going to kill us, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. You see, they knew that their ultimate faithfulness rested in God's authority and power alone, that God was the one that was able to deliver them. But perhaps in my mind, the most persuasive thing that they said was the third thing that they said in in the end of verse 18, and that was essentially that God owed them nothing. In that small phrase, uh, let me pull it up here, it's on a different page, verse 18, but if not... In other words, God can deliver, but if not, we're still not going to bend. We're still not going to bow. And so in that answer of conviction and faith is an answer that says, though they are facing the fires of judgment and death, that God is under no obligation to them. There is no obligation for God to deliver his people through that circumstance. None. How opposite is that of everything that we naturally think? That God is under some moral obligation to save creatures who have utterly rebelled against him? How borderline blasphemous is it for us to think that God would owe us, but yet he delivers? He delivers in spite of it. Here's what you and I need to know as we consider the consequences. It's this, that we will give an answer to God for our idolatry. 
Like I said at the very beginning, our association in this passage is more with Nebuchadnezzar and those bending the knee than it is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will associate with the deliverer here in a moment, but I want you to hold on to this for a moment that God owes you nothing. The Bible is very clear. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, just as it is appointed for man to live once and then comes judgment. That the Bible is very clear that, that judgment of fire is coming towards idolaters who bent the knee. And for you to assume that you've never bent the knee is a great assumption and a great risk for you to put your life on. But the good news of this passage is found when we depend on the deliverer in it. And so let's look at the deliverer in verses 24 down through 30. There is one fundamental difference between Christianity and every single other worldview and religion that is offered to you, and there are many. Here is the, the main difference. Christianity is the only worldview that is built on the foundation of grace. Christianity is the only worldview that would assert something like God owes you nothing, yet he gives you everything. That is the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religious system in the entire world. You see, God delivers his people not only here, but ultimately through Christ we'll look at momentarily. God delivers his people under a uh, suspicion not of uh, duty or obligation. God delivers his people from a heart compelled by grace. In other words, when God saw what he had made and the mess that we had put ourselves in, he did not do that out of some sense that he had to make things right in order to make himself look good. He ultimately did it so that his creatures could experience affection, love, and grace like none other. And that's what the Bible offers us in the coming of Jesus. You see, what happens in this passage is the king, I love the way that the passage reads, is, is that the king looks down and he says, were there three men that we put in the fire or four? And everyone around him affirms there were three men. And he says, well, I see four. You know, the, the text doesn't tell us whether Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw that fourth figure but the text makes it very clear that the God, the false God, Nebuchadnezzar, came and he looked down and he saw the deliverer. And there's great speculation, you know, is this, the, is this fourth person, is this a, a pre-incarnate or a pre-theophany of God coming in the person of Jesus? Like, is this Jesus in the fire? It certainly could be. The text doesn't demand it. You know, the way Nebuchadnezzar responds, he says that his appearance is like a son of the gods, does that sound any familiar? Anybody ever read the New Testament? What was one of the main titles for Jesus? The Son of God. And so there, there's a bit of speculation as to whether, is this Jesus? Is this an angel of the Lord? The, the bottom line is this. This is God with his people in their fire. This is God protecting his people from ultimate wrath and judgment. And if you've ever read the New Testament, you know that somebody else came to do the exact same thing. You see, what the New Testament tells us is that we are rescued from the flames of judgment because Jesus was ruined by the flames of judgment for us. That is the heart and the essence of Christianity. That God, in his loving kindness towards a people who did not deserve it, came to deliver his people from wrath that was coming to them. 
the wrath that was delivered for people who bent the knee to an idolatry. They were idolaters at heart. They were idolaters who loved people more than they loved God. They were idolaters who loved success and approval more than, than God. They were idolaters who loved money and wealth and worth more than God. Idolaters like you and idolaters like me. And they, the way that God delivers us from this wrath is by sending one who was the son of God and he did that very thing that we could not, namely live the life that you were supposed to live and then die the death that you and I deserved. And so if you know anything about Christianity, you know that Jesus died on a cross and a lot of times there's a lot of speculation about what exactly happened on that cross, but this thing we know for sure that on that cross, Jesus endured the suffering and the wrath and the judgment of God that you and I could not withstand on our own. And so the worst part about Jesus' suffering is not just the physical pain, but it was rather the fact that his father turned his face away, as we just sang in that last song. That God had turned his face away from his son, placing all of the wrath and the anger that should have come to you and should have come to me and put it on his own son. And so what are Christians offered today? We are offered a perfect record of righteousness. We are offered deliverance, not only from the wrath that's coming, namely the punishment for our sin, but we're offered a record of righteousness. In other words, there is nothing that you can do to get right in God's sight, nor to lose the rightness that you've already been given. When God sees his people, he sees them covered in his son the deliverer of Daniel chapter three. And so I believe that there are people today, perhaps even here, that think there is something they can do to deliver themselves from their own uncertain future. And I'm here to to deliver both bad news and good news. The bad news is you cannot do that. The good news is God has done that for you. I've titled this sermon, Faithful to the End. Because I think the the entire passage, the entire episode in Daniel chapter 3 was meant to do two things for us. It was meant to show us that God can deliver us, and then it was meant to produce faithfulness in us. In other words, regardless of our current circumstances of, you know, fire and, and trial and turmoil of our lives, that those are the very circumstances that God uses to bring about faithfulness in his people. I'll close with this. Some of you have perhaps seen the movie. uh, It's entitled Unbroken. Uh, The book's better. Um, But but, uh, I read the book and I watched the movie and I think this scene that I'm going to refer to is only in the movie, if I recall correctly. But Unbroken is about a man, Louis uh, Zamperini, I think. I didn't write his name down. Louis. And this was a man that was in World War II and his plane went down on a mission and they were captured as prisoners of war by the Japanese. And they were put in, they were 47 days out on a raft. This is a, this is a great story, but 47 days out on, in the raft of an ocean. And I mean, they survived shark attacks, no food, the, you know, the weather and, and all of those things. And then after they survived that, they were, they were captured in war. And so they became prisoners of war. And throughout the book and in, and, and, and in the movie, there is this, this nemesis, this antagonist towards this man, Louis. Uh, Louis was actually an Olympian. And so he was an Olympian runner. And his, the, the, the guy that was over him, they nicknamed him the bird. The bird would po- torture Louis above and beyond everybody else because probably because he knew of who Louis was in his former life. And so this, this movie is just a brutal exposition of this man's utter torture. 
And as the movie kind of comes to a draw, they're, they're in this, this coal area. They're, they're shoveling coal, and he's not working fast enough, Louis not. And so this man, the bird, tells him to pick up this large wooden log. If you've seen the movie, you'll remember this. But he picks up this large log, and the man, the bird, tells him not to put the log down or he would shoot him. He told his men, shoot him if he puts this log down. And, you know, the power of a movie, he, he holds this log over his head while this man inflicts pain and suffering on him, and he will not put the log down. And he actually brings the bird to submission where he leaves in anger because he would not drop the log. And for me, that was a picture of what it looks like for the Christian to take up the way of the cross. That though the fiery temptations and trials, they come and they are coming, that faithfulness to God in the end looks like that because God in the end can deliver us. So since God has delivered us from death, we can trust him with our life. May that be true of us today. Let's pray. Father God, I know sometimes when we read these stories in your word, we chalk them up to myth and fairy tale. We think that we haven't experienced these types of things in our own lives, and so we put our experience on record as the ultimate standard of truth, and for that we ask forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look at a passage like Daniel 3 and the way you deliver your people through fire and judgment, and that we would ultimately not look to our own faithfulness, but look to the faithfulness of your son, Jesus. We thank you that he withstood your wrath so that we could be made right with you. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today who have not trusted in that good news, that they would do that even, even now in this prayer. And Lord, as we continue our service by responding in song and by coming to the table Lord, I pray that you would make your love oh so evident to a people who oh so desperately need it. Would you do that? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.